to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to pick it up here, if we can, in verse 15. I just want to read this whole passage for you, and then we'll start unpacking all of that. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And again, our focus is going to be verses 23 to 26, but let's just get our context first before we, <clears throat> before we begin. For this reason... He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must, of necessity, be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead." For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by, by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now. Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for all these dear saints who took it upon themselves, even in a shortened night, to come here, Lord, to learn more about you. Not just so we can be puffed up with knowledge, Father, but rather so that we can apply it to our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory. That's our heart's desire, Lord. Not only are we edified by the word, but Lord, we want to edify others as well, both by the word itself and by the way that we live our lives. So help us to do that, Father. Help us to have that mindset. Open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to your wonderful truth. And may you be glorified in and through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have hopefully found yourself now to verse 23 in chapter 9. And so now we're coming to where the author has been leading us throughout this entire section 
of Hebrews, which actually began in chapter 8, verse 7. What has been his primary message? His primary message, and what you should have taken away, hopefully by this point, is Jesus is a better mediator of a better covenant. Or if you want to shorten that, Jesus is better. But this focus right now is Jesus is a better mediator in a, of a better covenant. And so to this point, he's demonstrated through a myriad of different approaches. And we've seen that the new covenant is better because it contains better promises. Contains better promises. No longer would, be, would God's word be written on stone tablets, but where? On our hearts, our minds. We will truly know God in this new covenant. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to understand his truth and apply it to our hearts in a way that is pleasing and acceptable in his sight. Most importantly of all, God will remember our sins no more. Amen? Which means that we will have eternal redemption and eternal salvation and eternal access to God in this new covenant none of which were available in the first covenant. So to expound upon that further, the author has been comparing not just the old covenant to the new covenant, but also the components of the old covenant to the components of the new covenant. We've already seen the design and the furnishings of the old covenant and how each of those pointed to a greater spiritual reality beginning in chapter 9. Remember, we said that each of the furnishings in the tabernacle represented something that was pointing towards Christ. Remember that? So we have <clears throat> everything in there, from the showbread, which was the bread of life, to the lampstand, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, even to the incense that were burned, which represented the prayers right, of the priest in the tabernacle and the saints in the new covenant. Every, All of it, all of it was pointing towards Christ. Then we saw the functions of the Old Covenant priesthood and the, and the limitations that were inherent in their worship and service. And we learned that this new priesthood, the, the high priestly work of Jesus, was far superior to the work of the Levitical priests. That his mediatorial work was done in heaven, not in a man-made structure, but in the true Holy of Holies, the true sanctuary of God. And Jesus' access into this heavenly sanctuary was not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own shed blood. And only the shed blood of Jesus could purify the consciences of men from uh, dead works so that they may serve the living God. All that led us to the verses that we just read, verses 15 to 22. And it was in these verses that we not only learned about the necessity and the sufficiency of his death, but we also learned about his blood. And we learned that his blood, that his death was necessary to inaugurate the new covenant, and that his death was sufficient to redeem not only those in the new covenant, but whom? Those in the first covenant as well. Those on that side of the cross were looking forward to the promises of God when he would redeem his people, when he would cleanse their hearts and purify their minds. See, God all along had been pointing to this internal reality, and all of those external realities were really just symbolic and showing what really needed to happen in God's ultimate sacrifice. The author likened the necessity of death, remember, in a covenant to a last will and testament. 
He said, really, the last will and testament is only active when the one who made the last will and testament dies. It is then, after the death, that the, that the, uh, the gifts are dispersed, if you will. And the same holds true in the new covenant. Just like the benefits of a will are not dispersed until one making it dies, the same is true in a covenant. And we saw clearly from this illustration that all the benefits of the new covenant could not be enacted until Jesus died. He is the one who made the covenant. And then secondly, we saw the necessity of the blood. Just like Moses sprinkled the blood on all the elements of the old covenant to cleanse and to sanctify and to purify them for service and worship, so blood must be shed in the new covenant. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there is no obtaining our eternal redemption. And without having eternal redemption, to redeem means to pay for, to pay for our sins. It comes from the idea of redeeming someone out of slavery. You redeem, you purchase them out of slavery. And indeed, we were redeemed, were we not, out of the slavery of our own sin. And that was a very costly price, one that was paid in blood. And so as we've seen in Hebrews, everything we have in our relationship with God is contingent upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Everything. God is not satisfied or pleased with us. But he is totally satisfied and pleased with Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to the necessity and sufficiency of Jesus' death and blood. Everything that the author has been talking about up to this point points to the cross. All of it. It all focuses in on the cross, and that's where he's leading us. See, he is the one who opens the, vo- the door for us to have access in this new covenant relationship. He's the one, Jesus, who gives us intimate access to God. He's the one who provided eternal redemption. He's the one that, uh, that obtains our eternal inheritance. It is Christ and Christ alone and his shed blood that makes all of that possible. And we see that clearly beginning in verse 23. Let's look at that again. Therefore, he says, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So a point number one in your outline, there was a necessity for a better sacrifice in the heavenlies. There was a necessity for a better sacrifice in the heavenlies. That word, therefore, right? We all know what that means. When we see that word, therefore, we ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? That word, therefore, immediately connects us back to the main point of this whole section. Remember in verse 15, that summarizes all that he's talking about. So that brings us back there. It was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens. And he's referring back to the necessity of sprinkling the vessels and sprinkling the furnishings and then sprinkling the people and the priest with blood. Everything that would be used in the worship and service of God that would come into his holy presence needed to be sanctified, needed to be cleansed, needed to be purified with the blood. All of it. And let's not forget that these things that were purified were purified how? Externally, not internally. Remember the qualifications for a priest were not character and virtue and, and uh, their spiritual 
a worthiness. Remember, in the Old Covenant, was were you born in the right tribe, right? Did you not have any blemish on you? Were you of the right age? They were all external, external, external. We talked about that earlier in chapter 8. Even the high priest on the Day of Atonement had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he would even never think about heading into the Holy of Holies to represent the people of God. But it was not the blood of bulls and goats itself that brought atonement. The word atonement means covering, right? Covered our sins. In Hebrew, that word is kippur, right? So yom, day, kippur, atonement, the day of atonement. And you may recall that the blood represented is explained to us in Leviticus chapter 7. Now, we were just there in Sunday school, so this ought to be a short hop for you, but let's go look at that again. Hebrew, uh, Leviticus, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. This would be a good one for you to write into your notes there on the, on the back side there. Leviticus 17, verse 11. Why the blood? Why all that blood? As Pastor Ben was talking about this morning, right? Why this blood everywhere? Blood, blood, blood. Sacrifice here, sacrifice there, sprinkled on everything. Why all of the blood? Was there something magical in the blood itself? No, it's what the blood represented. What did the blood represent? Chapter 17, Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to do what? To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Jump on down to verse 14. What does it say there? For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. All those ceremonial rituals, all of those were pointing to the greater reality of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice in the heavenlies. All of it. Now, what are the heavenly things that need to be cleansed back in our text in Hebrew chapter 9. Well, I can tell you there's a lot of debate here on this verse, my friends, because one of the first things you would ask yourself is, why would things in the heavenlies need to be cleansed? Why would things into the presence of God need to be cleansed? And uh, I will tell you there's a lot of different, there's, a, I would say, at least eight different views on why that is so when you ask yourself that question. Some people say, well, uh, Job, Job 1.6 tells us that Satan was there once and so uh, and is still making accusations, so the heavenlies need to be cleansed of that. Some people say, well, look, they had fallen angels there one time, so we had to be cleansed of that, you know, almost like it needed a good scrubbing. But I will tell you what I believe is the most accurate understanding based upon the context here, because I believe that you and I are the things that need to be cleansed. You and I are the ones who are seated in the heavenlies, my friends. You and I are what needs to be cleansed in the presence of God. Let's not forget, the author of Hebrews is comparing the need of, for the cleansing of temporal things, external things, that are merely shadows and copies of the true spiritual reality, that does not mean that they were not real, but that their entire purpose was to demonstrate the spiritual reality of heaven. Look at chapter 9, verse 8 in Hebrews. 
just to refresh your memory, go back a page. Remember when we talked about this, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, verse 8, chapter 9, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Verse 9, which is a symbol, that word means parable, right? That's the Greek word, parable. It means a, a picture, right? Or a copy, a shadow, a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He's saying, listen, all of those things that they were doing were pointing to a, re a spiritual reality that was going on not in the things that we can see, but in a realm we can't see. All of those things were pointing to a reality in the true sanctuary, the sanctuary where God is the sanctuary where the Son is seated, making intercession for us. See, they were a symbol for that time. They couldn't make the worshiper perfect in conscience. But just like the tabernacle had to be purified so that God might manifest his presence there, even so the people of God, we need to be cleansed and we need to be sanctified so as to become, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your place in Hebrews 9 here. Hebrews chapter 2, first of all, verse 6. Uh, actually, we'll pick it up in verse 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And notice verse 6. And raised us up with him and did what? Seated us where? With him in what location? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally, you're already in the throne room of God, my friends. You're already there. Look at verse 22 in chapter 2. Uh, actually, verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together, he's talking about the body of Christ here, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. How? In the Holy Spirit. In the Spirit. My friends, you are the temple of God now in the new covenant. You are the dwelling place of God. God's Holy Spirit, if you're saved, is dwelling within you. In the Old Testament, he was with you. In the New Testament, he is in you. Peter says the same thing. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To be his spiritual house. That's us, beloved. That's us. We're his spiritual house. It is necessary to be cleansed, 1 Peter 1, 2, by his blood. Verse 19, in that very same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1. With the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
What's the author telling us here? He's saying, listen, if it was necessary for all of the things that were used in worship and service to God to be cleansed with the sprinkling of blood, how much more is it necessary for you and I to be sprinkled with his blood in the heavenly sanctuary, in the true sanctuary where eternal forgiveness is given? If all of those other things were just symbolic and pointing us to the true reality, how much more important is it in the true reality that we be cleansed? Not just objects used for worship, but human beings, God's children used in worship. If it was necessary in the old covenant to worship and be used in service to be cleansed by the blood of a sacrifice, how much more necessary is it for us? who are to be used for his glory, to worship him, to be the dwelling place of God, to be sprinkled with his blood, a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. Well, let's move to verse 24, shall we, in Hebrews chapter 9. And that really continues our point, point number one. Here's he explaining the point. And what he does is he tells us, first of all, what he's not saying, and then what he actually he is saying he begins with what he's not. He's not saying, look at verse Hebrews 9, verse 24. He is not saying that Christ entered the earthly tabernacle made with human hands, a mere copy of the true one. He's saying he did not do that. Why did Christ not enter the temple in Jerusalem? He did not enter the holy place. Why not? Because he was not a Levite, my friends. He was from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. And God had commanded that only those of the tribe of Levi could enter the holy place. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. For Jesus to enter into the holy place in the temple when he was living his life as a sinless life in complete obedience to God's will, for him to enter in from the tribe of Judah would have violated God's law. And when you violate God's law, God has a word for that. It's called Sin. And again, what would have been the purpose since those things were just shadows and copies of the reality? They were just shadows and copies of the reality that Jesus would accomplish as our great high priest and the mediator of a new covenant after his ascension. Jesus didn't mess around with the inferior copy. He entered the true sanctuary and brought about the forgiveness of our sin eternally. But now here comes what he is saying. He said Jesus didn't enter the earthly sanctuary, but he did enter what? The true sanctuary, and he appeared where? In the very presence of God. For what reason? To apply the blood that was shed upon the cross. What blood? His blood. The blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, let's be clear here. Jesus didn't take his literal blood like the uh, Old Testament priest would do and put it in a basin, right? They would slaughter, slaughter the animal and put it into a basin and mix it up with the hyssop, right, a little bit of water. Now, he didn't walk in there with a little basin. But in a very real sense, both by the means in which his blood was shed upon the cross and the spiritual reality of what that actually meant, Jesus did after his death and after his burial and after his ascension ascend into the true holy of holies 
and his blood was credited to or applied to the account, your account, of your sin, my account of my sin. And God the Father looked upon that shed blood and his sacrificial death as an atonement for our sin, a covering for our sin. And do not miss who that was for. You see that in your verse? Who was that for? Was that for Jesus? Did Jesus need to atone for his sins? No, it was for us, the text tells us. For us. Our great high priest carrying the weight and penalty for our sins appeared in the presence of God the Father for us. My friends, it was our sins that were written on his hands and his feet. It was our sins that brought the hammer down that pierced his flesh. He carries the marks of the penalty for our sins upon his body forever, permanently. And he carried the marks of our redemption, the price that was paid for our sins by the one who knew no sin, into the very presence of God where he remains to this day. And he is there as our advocate, our intercessor, even now. Even now. And it's there in the presence of God. That his shed blood was applied to our account for our sins. And the very best best part of it all is that God remembers your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed your sin. And if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as, as your Lord and Savior, Romans 8, 1 tells us, therefore there is no condemnation in you. None. There was a rural village There lived a doctor who was noted both for his wonderful professional skills, but also his devotion to Christ. And after his death, the books were examined. And several entries had written across them in red ink, forgiven, too poor to pay. Unfortunately, his wife was of a different disposition. And she insisted that these debts be settled, so she filed a suit in the proper court. And when the case was being heard, the judge asked her, Is this your husband's handwriting in red? She replied, Yes, it was. Then said the judge, There's not a court in the land that can touch those whom he has forgiven. Jesus writes, my friends, in bold crimson on your account, Forgiven. No debt. Too poor to pay. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that would condemn? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who raised was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for whom? For us. The sufficiency of Christ's atoning death is the centerpiece of our entire salvation, my friends. So point number one, there was a necessity for a better sacrifice in the heavenlies. Look at point number two. Jesus' sacrifice was only necessary once. Only necessary once. Look at verse 25 then back in our text here. 
It says that nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. The emphasis here in this, in this sentence is on the word often. This is an important aspect of Jesus' sacrifice because it demonstrates another startling contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the high priest of the Old Covenant and our great high priest in the New Covenant. The high priest in the Old Covenant was very ineffective for two reasons. First of all, he had to enter every year on the Day of Atonement again and again and again and again. No high priest could ever leave the Holy of Holies and say, well, that settles it. That sin issue is taken care of once and for all. Furthermore, never once did any high priest think about offering his own shed blood. But Jesus' sacrifice was only one time, and he did not bring in the blood of an ammo, but rather what? His own blood. The blood of the perfect sacrifice. The blood of the perfect spotless Lamb of God without blemish. The one-time sacrifice of the shed blood of Jesus Christ finishes everything forever. It opens the door, my friends, for us to enter the throne of God's heaven. And when he cried on that cross, it is finished. That's exactly what it meant. He had died one time to settle all of the judicial matters of God so that all of our sins could be forgiven. One time. So Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It did not need to be repeated. And although he's our forever high priest, this in no way suggests that he was perpetually offering himself either. Some primarily Roman Catholics, have ignored that truth of Scripture. And they've instituted in the celebration of the Eucharist this repeated reenactment of his crucifixion on earth. They are essentially re-crucifying Jesus every Sunday when they partake in the Lord's Supper. That's both contradictory and misleading to the text, my friends. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus was so effective, so sufficient, that it could only be once and for all. There was no need to repeat again and again. Otherwise, look at verse 26, the beginning of that. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Here the author is working out, what it would mean, he offers a hypothetical for you. If that's true, then this must be true, hypothetically. So he's working it out for you. What if the one-time sacrifice of Jesus shed blood was not enough to atone for our sins, he's asking hypothetically? If that were true, then he would have to suffer often. How often? As often as you and I sin, my friends. That's how often he would need to sacrifice or be sacrificed. It would be a non-stop sacrifice instead of a once-and-for-all sacrifice, wouldn't it? And it's not just your sins, and it's not just my sins. It would be for the sins committed since the foundation of the world, since creation. How many times do you think Jesus would have to come onto the earth put on flesh, live a sinless life, then die on the cross if he needed to die every time we sinned. My friends, he would never have been able to get off that cross. 
What this means for us is that we believe in, on Jesus Christ one time we are forever saved. Under the Old Testament law, because the sacrifices were offered again and again and again, you could never have confidence that your sin was settled. It was only settled until next year when you had to, you know, all of those. Every time you walked out of there and sinned again, you knew you had something against your account. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ resolves everything once and for all and forever. You can know that you are forever saved and that your sin case against you is gone. Those who think they can lose their salvation do not understand the value of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Those who think they can lose their salvation tend to look at themselves or others and not the one-time substitutionary value of Christ's sacrifice. Look at the second part of verse 26. But now, but now, oh, how I love it when the text tells me, but now, but now and but God, two of my two favorite words in all of Scripture. But now, but God, but now, once at the consummation of the ages. What does that mean? It means in God's perfect time. God's perfect time. It means that Jesus did not come into this world at some random time, and that his incarnation was at the perfect, preordained, decreed time. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Keep your thumb in Hebrews 9. Go back a few chapters to Galatians chapter 4. Paul speaks about this very thing in Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, what time? God's time, my friends. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, purchase, those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as son, that we might be adopted into the family of God. When did that happen? In the exact moment, decreed before time began, that Jesus Christ would put on human flesh and be born of a virgin and born into this world, so that we may be redeemed. It's like a crescendo in an opera. Have you ever been to an opera? Have you ever been to a big orchestra thing where just you can tell the whole thing? None of you? Okay. Well, when you go to a big opera or you go to a big orchestra or a big play, everything is building to the climax of that one moment, that one, that one uh, moment where everything comes into focus. Everything keeps building and building to this one point where the entire opera has been building uh, until it explodes onto the stage with absolute brilliance and authority. All of those previous sacrifices from all of those earthly priests, all of the days of atonement, year after year after year, were to make us long for the day that God would fulfill his promise to remember our sins no more. They were like bit solos, bit parts, coming to the point where all the voices would join together and the rafters would shake, that this was the focal point of God's redemptive plan for all of mankind. Every one of those old covenant sacrifices was like a bit solo in the scheme of this grand opera. 
every one of those small parts just kept building and building, building, until the crescendo in this redemptive opera when Jesus said, it is finished. That's the crescendo. That's that point in time when the angels rejoiced. And when he did, the cymbals clashed, the bass drum bellowed, and every instrument and every voice in heaven proclaimed and exalted when Jesus had accomplished on the cross, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Beloved, the word of God tells us we're living in the last age. Do you realize that? 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. 1 John 2.18 tells us, children, it is the last hour. And as we live in the church age, however long that is, all who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior look forward to his glorious appearing and his second coming. Amen? We look forward to that. But his second coming is like an encore to the great opera. The great crescendo in this marvelous opera. The encore is what we experience at the end. It's tremendous, and we look forward to it. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do so because of the cross. When you're baptized, you're baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're buried with him in his death, and raised to walk with him in the newness of life. In other words, we always point to the crescendo, not the encore. It is his death, his burial, his resurrection that is the crescendo. It is what has been accomplished at the cross, the shed blood of Jesus, and what that accomplished for us that came in the consummation of the ages, the fullness of time and God's perfect time, all of part of God's perfect plan, to reconcile us with himself. How did he do that? Look at the very end. Go back to Hebrews 9, the very last part of verse 26. What does it tell us? He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice that he has been manifested. What does that mean? That's speaking about the incarnation of Christ. That's when Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, put on human flesh and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John 1.14 tells us, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, and the glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. First John 1, 1 through 4, jot that down. You can look at it yourself. The Apostle John says, We saw him. We touched him. We conversed with him. He was real. For what purpose? Our text tells us to put away sin. That word put away means to annul or to cancel. To annul means as if it never happened. Jesus' sacrifice put away. It annulled our sin as if it never happened. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. How did he save us? By putting away our sin, by canceling it out, by annulling it forever. He did not come in this world to deny sin. 
He did not come into this world to soften the idea of sin. He didn't come into this world to redefine sin. He didn't come into this world to eliminate any thought of the penalty for sin. He did not come into this world to call sin a mistake or a disease. He, came, he did not come into this world to do as, as Lewis Johnson said, to lull us into a false sense of security about our sin. No. He came in this world to do what? To put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. He came to offer himself in order to make it possible for our sin to be done away with once and forever so that we could have access to God and to his heaven, so that we could have eternal redemption, claim our eternal inheritance, and have eternal salvation. I want you to notice that word sin. You can circle that in your Bible. Do you notice that word? It's singular. It's a singular word, singular noun. The sin is the whole condemning case against us. It's all of it combined. That's the crucial element of the charge against us, isn't it? It's sin. The wages of sin are death. If the wages of sin, it's the wages of sin that would send you and me to hell. Someone will need to give an account for my sin. Someone needs to give an account for your sin. But Jesus came, Christ came to dissolve that case against us so that we as sinners could have access to God, so that we would have eternal redemption, eternal salvation. I doubt seriously we can begin to realize what it takes to put away sin. No religion can put away sin. No religious activity can put away sin in the sight of God. You can go to church every time the door is open, and you can be involved in all kinds of religious things. You can be confirmed. You can be baptized. You can tithe your money. You can work on every committee. Those are all wonderful things. You can do all kinds of things, but none of it can put away your sin, my friends. None of it. You can be very religious and very lost. And you will not put away one sin on your own. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Which is why only Jesus Christ did that. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And all those old covenant ceremonies, all of those rituals were truly something to see. But not a single one of them could put away sin. It could only cover it. Never could any Israelite say, I was saved by keeping the law. Never. No high priest in the Old Covenant ever offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin. Every single high priest in the Old Covenant offered up the blood of animals. But Jesus, our great high priest, offered up himself as a sacrifice to put away our sin, not his sin, our sin. The Apostle John puts it this way in John 15, 13. Greater love has... No one than this, that one lay down his life for a friend. It's the perfect sacrifice alone to put away our sins. Beloved, I want to leave you with this thought this morning. There's a difference between necessary and sufficient. Necessary and sufficient. For instance, in school, a student who earns an A is guaranteed to pass the course. In other words, an A is sufficient condition to pass the course. But it's not necessary. 
because students who earn a B or a C will also pass the course. To prove something to be true, we sometimes need a multitude of necessary conditions that together become sufficient. In other words, they all have to exist at once for the answer to be true. Those levitical sacrifices were not sufficient, but they were necessary because God required them. Under the law, a different type of sacrifice was brought for each sin, and each time a sin was committed, a new sacrifice had to be offered. Many conditions, but none providing permanent salvation. All necessary, but not sufficient. But Jesus offered one single sacrifice for all of our many I repeat this, many sins. Some people treat Christ as necessary but not sufficient. They believe that Christ plus something else. For them, it might be Christ plus baptism or Christ plus joining the church or Christ plus some ritual. Others see Christ as sufficient but not necessary. They may believe that Christianity is fine for you but not for them. And they may think, they seem to think, that all attempts to gain forgiveness are equally acceptable. I don't like the one that Jesus offered. I don't like the idea of death on a cross for my sin. I'm going to substitute it with one of my own making. How about, I'm just a good person. Seems a lot less bloody to me. Should work. Except it doesn't work. As we've seen numerous times in our texts, blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Someone always had to die. That's the necessary condition. But I, for one, thank God that Jesus' blood is absolutely sufficient. Having met all the criteria, Jesus' sacrifice once and for all guarantees our salvation. My friends, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, if you're trusted in Christ plus something else, if you're trusting in something other than Christ, may I just encourage you where you're seated right now to bow your head and confess that to the Lord. Recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Repent of that and cry out to him for salvation. Trust in his death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for your sin. Understand that his death was necessary and his blood is sufficient to wash you clean of your sin, to redeem you, not just for now, but eternally. Eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, eternal salvation, eternal access to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, my friends. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again, for the reminder from the truth of your text. Lord, we again and again and again take the sacrifice of your shed blood so lightly in our lives. We move about our day in a flurry of activities and we Seldom, Lord, stop and pause and reflect upon the price that was paid so that we may have eternal salvation. Forgive us, Father, for how selfish we are the vast majority of the time, where we often just think about ourselves. What's good for us? How does this fit into my schedule? 
Lord, forgive us. I pray, Lord, if there's one here in our midst that does not know you, that today was the day when they just surrendered it all. I quit trying to fill that emptiness inside of them with something other than you. And Lord, I pray for those in our midst today that do know you as Lord and Savior, truly know you. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would live each day with a full understanding of the price you paid for our eternal salvation. That we would get up each day and thank you. That we would cry out to you in thankfulness and rejoice that we have another day, Lord, in which to serve you. Never taking for granted, never pushing it off to the side like it's no big deal. Always mindful of the price you paid to redeem us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.